This morning we're going to spend the lion's share of our time in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, uh, don't have one on your phone, you can find a Bible in the back of the pew in front of you. We would love for that to be a gift that you would take home. Uh, If you're not familiar with how to use a Bible, there's a table of contents at the front of that Bible. It'll let you know where the chapters are or where the books are. The chapters are going to be the large numbers and the verses are going to be the small numbers. And so as we make reference to chapter 15, verse so and so, that's how you're going to find that. So we're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 uh, for the lion's share of our time this morning. But let me start off somewhere a little bit different and, and feel free not to turn there. Almost, almost every week, as I talk to people in the community and as we do benevolence here at the church, and so somebody comes up and they have some type of real pressing need, they come into the office, we sit across the table with them, and we, we talk with them, and we help out with a variety of things. And the reason we're helping out with, with things like food, with gas, with rent, the, thing, the reason we're helping out with these isn't because we ultimately think that we're able to eradicate poverty, right? If you've seen our budget, you've seen the budget of the other churches in our community, you know that we cannot actually eradicate poverty. Our desire to help people, because it places us in this position, it places us immediately across from somebody, and so we tell them, here, here's your help, here's a grocery card, here, here's your help, here's something for gas, here, here's your help, we're going to help you with your rent. And then we begin to talk to them about things that we think are so much more important than food, than gas, than rent. We talk to them about Jesus Christ, we talk to them about eternal life. And so this week on, on Monday, Monday's my day, and so I had a chance to talk to this guy. He's relatively new to the community, and he just needed some help. He just needed some assistance before some things kick up and get going. So I said, I slid the car across. I said, man, here's this. this. This is for you. This is for you. And then my conversation with him flowed, as do most of my conversations with people, something along the lines of trying to get to eternal things, things of eternal consequence. And so just ask the question, and this is real cheery, right? So what do you say? You, you leave the church, you're walking across Stonewall, and then BAM! 18-wheeler just runs you over. They're not normally on Stonewall, but this one is, it runs you over. You are dead. What happens? This answer is, is really instructive for me to know the course of our conversation. So he says, man, I go to heaven. Oh, you're, I, I, like I plan to be in heaven, that's awesome. Just, just out of curiosity though, how do you know that? How do you know you're going to be in heaven? What does that look like? How can I know that I'll be in heaven? This is what he told me. He said, at the end of your life, if you have done more good things than bad things, you go to heaven. I said, so let me, just, let me get this straight. Let me understand. And so I've got this, this, this scale before me. And so as long as my good pushes down my bad, even by like one, I go to heaven? He said, that's pretty much it. I said, are you keeping track of how you do? He said, I try not to. I said, I I don't blame you. I said, would it surprise you, though, to read that the Bible actually gives us an indication that that's not right? He said, really? What does it look like? What's right? I said, but let me me read you out of Titus chapter 3. I said, listen to what Paul writes. In the midst of our toiling, in the midst of our striving, Paul writes, he says in verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God our Savior appeared. So check this out. We're in the midst of striving. We're in the midst of toiling. We're in the midst of being inwardly broken and bereft. And the way Paul pictures it, the goodness and loving kindness of our God appears. And this is how it appears. It appears in the person of Jesus. In verse 5, it us into this. He saved us. It is God's goodness 
It is God's mercy. It is God's grace that comes near you into the person of Jesus Christ that saves you. But this next word from Paul is so incredibly instructive. It says, he saved us not, not because of works by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So I say, I just want you to understand something. Good works is a carousel that you can never get off of. You can never do enough good. You can never minimize and, and keep yourself from doing as little bad or evil or just neutral as possible to merit, to earn salvation. But we find ourselves repeatedly back in this same thing. So many of us, this is what we're doing in reality. Many of us, we lived crucified lives. We live crucified lives. We look at the model of Jesus and we say, absolutely, Jesus died for my sins. And what this does for us is it propels us forward in morality. It propels us forward to do good and to be good. And what happens? I mean, we find ourselves not being good. We find ourselves not being able to do good. I remember I had this really kind of eye-opening moment for myself when I was in college. I was never instructed that doing good made God love me more. But what I found when I was in college is that I would repeatedly enter onto this carousel where when I was doing good and I was doing right, God was so pleased with me and he was so close to me and, and heaven was open for me. But when I found myself in sin, when I found myself struggling with doubt, when I found myself struggling with doing good, God wanted nothing to do with me. So my relationship with God felt ultimately like I was the one upholding it. I was the one making us close. And he was the one willing to accept me on the basis of my goodness. See, we recognize as Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians 15, we aren't supposed to live crucified lives. We are to live resurrected lives because you recognize that the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. Paul opens up and he writes to this group and some of them are doubting the resurrection. And then there are others in the group that say, you know, it's really not such a big deal. Like if we believe in the resurrection or not, if the resurrection is real or not, it, it's just not such a big deal. And look at what Paul begins to communicate to them. Look at verses one and two. He says, now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you. Unless, of course, I preached to you in vain. This is what Paul writes to them. He says, this word you've received, it is actually right now saving you. And so in terms of our salvation, when we think about it, salvation isn't primarily some decision we made in a moment in the past, a moment of need, a moment of weakness, a moment of brokenness. And so we're in that moment and God comes in and he saves us. It's not primarily that. It, we are saved at a point, but we are still being saved now in our salvation, which is upheld, empowered, and held steadfast by God, carries us on in to the future. So he writes to them. He says, you are being saved. This hope that you have is yours because of the good work of God done for you and in you. He calls us to hold fast to that. Look what he writes in verses three and four. He gives us the gospel. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance. He said, this is the most important thing you need to remember. 
And it's what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And so Paul gives us this instruction. He says, look, you need to understand this. Jesus died for your sins. Now, this is one of the things that we, we most often place, kind of put out there, right? So God died for the sins of my, uh, my deadbeat friend. God died for the sins of my loser neighbor. God died for kind of sins out there, but, but we fail to internalize and really understand that God died for the compulsion I have of being good. God died for the compulsion I have of being good and of doing the right thing and doing the good thing. God died for your sins, and he died for my sins. And then Paul goes on. He says, look, he, he died. He was buried in the grave. But then, look, he doesn't stay there. It's not just his crucified faith. It is a resurrected faith. We also read that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, Paul, at the time he wrote, he wrote and, and, and you could actually speak to someone who had seen the risen Jesus. Wouldn't that be something? If you could speak to someone who had seen the risen Jesus. So Paul writes to them, he says, look, if you're struggling with the reality of this, you need to know that there are people who saw Jesus resurrected, and you can go out and talk to them. You can engage in these people in conversation. You can talk to them. That's why he writes these next things in verses 5 through 7. He says, he appeared to Peter. He then appeared to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have died. So Paul writes, he says, you need to be assured of the resurrection. This is what the gospel is. And if you're struggling to believe this, believe this if you're struggling to understand this, man, go and talk to them, one of the more than 500. Most of these guys are still alive. Most of them are still kicking around, and you can talk to any of them. You see, we recognize that the resurrection changes everything. But what then is to come of us if the resurrection is a hoax? What then is to come of us is if the resurrection is completely false, who in, in whatever ways you want to denigrate it. Well, Paul gives us a variety of things that absolutely find themselves in peril if the resurrection isn't true. Look at verse 14 in chapter 15. Paul writes and says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. You might apply this this morning and say that if Jesus Christ isn't raised, this is a real sorry waste of a Sunday morning for you. If Jesus isn't raised, then, then ultimately this is an exercise in futility that all my encouragement to you is, is just, just bad NPR, right? It's just bad national public radio. That's all this really is if Christ is not raised. Our preaching is in vain, our exhortation is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We compound it in verse 15. He says, we make God a liar. The resurrection isn't true. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So he said, look, if Jesus isn't raised and we're not ultimately going to be resurrected either, then we characterize God as a liar. Because what we're doing is going out and telling people that in, in fact, Jesus was raised from the dead, but, and if all that's true, then we're lying, and we're lying about God. See, the resurrection changes everything. In verse 17, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Back at the beginning of chapter 15, Paul said that Jesus died for our sins, but we find out if the resurrection isn't true, if you're primarily just living a crucified life, 
that somehow you've read the Bible and you said, this Jesus, man, he was a good guy. Like he was just going about doing nice things, and, and, and he, he's really just a moral fellow, and I really enjoy these things, and, and I really like this idea of who Jesus is. And if you find yourself kind of being bought into this idea, Paul, he awakens us. He says, you just need to know this. You are still in your sins. If you don't believe in a resurrected Jesus, then there's no atonement. There's no covering for your sins. So what John writes in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, he says, we have an advocate with the Father. So anytime we sin, we find that Jesus is there and he's ready to make intercession for us. But if the resurrection isn't true, Jesus isn't there. So we have no advocate. And if the resurrection isn't there, that Jesus is not a sufficient, the Bible refers to it as a propitiation, that no one took our, our penalty and overcame death, that he died and all he can do if he stayed dead is encourage us but he cannot resurrect us. If the resurrection isn't true, we're still in our sins. And look what he goes on to talk about for others. Verse 18, if the resurrection isn't true, then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. I have an opportunity to preach a number of funerals. I've been to even more than I've preached. And you'll find that, that when you go to a funeral, people bend over backwards to show you some joy, some solace, and some comfort. And they almost all follow this predictable pattern of, we're going to see them again someday, right? Now, some of the people, we just know that's not true. But, but we find ourselves in the midst of this, and he said, you're going to see them again someday. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is false, we will never see them again. Then all those who have preceded us in death remain in the grave. Then all of those who precede us in death will never be raised again. The resurrection isn't true. Look what he says about us in verse 19. Read this with me. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. Man, I hate to be pitied. Right? I guess it's going back to I was a big fan of the, the A-team when Mr. T would always say, I pity the fool. Right? And I was like, I don't want to be the fool. I don't want to be pitied. But to be pitied for our belief in Jesus Christ, the resurrection isn't true. Paul writes and says, we of all people are, are most to be pitied. And this is why. Because our hope of salvation rests on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not his moral teaching, not his martyr's death. Our hope rests on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, if the resurrection is true, look what Paul writes in 20 through 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He says, for as by man came death, by man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all are made alive. The way the Bible teaches this, God created all things. In the beginning, he created a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, and they volitionally chose, they chose to sin against God. They chose what they thought was right instead of what God told them was right, and they sinned against him. And this introduced sin into the world. And, and you and I, we have all been caught up in sin since that time. 
And so we find that sin's not primarily something just out there. Sin is something that in some sense finds its home in us as well. You and I, each one, are culpable, guilty, responsible, in front of God because of our individual sin. It's not just sin out there in our neighborhood. It's not just that we live in a bad neighborhood that is sinful. We are caught up in our own individual sin. And that comes through Adam. So Adam comes along and he brings death. Jesus comes along and he brings life through his death. So in Adam we all die, but in Jesus we all have an opportunity to be resurrected, to be made alive. In Adam we die through sin. In Jesus we, raise, we are raised and we are resurrected through his death. Look what Paul writes down in 53, closer to the end of the chapter. He says, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable this mortal body must put on immortality for when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality then shall come the saying that that is written death is swallowed up in victory goodness can never hope to atone for sin personal righteousness can never hope to cover sin, our failures, our misgivings, our thoughts, our bad practices, none of these things can be covered by personal righteousness, my own personal goodness. So Paul writes, he says, in essence, we need to put on Jesus. Jesus needs to come into our lives. We need to be changed. We need to be made new. The perishable, my body, which is failing, and after working outside yesterday, I feel it, needs to put on the imperishable. The mortal, I am dying each and every day, needs to put on the immortal. And so then he quotes from Isaiah 25.8. Isaiah 25.8 reads this way. He says, he will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. In Jesus we have hope. In Jesus we have promise. And if the resurrection is true, and the resurrection changes everything, then a number of things become true for us. We cease toiling. You know what toiling is? Toiling is me out in my flower beds pulling weeds. I get that whole thing de-weeded and a bird flies over and poops in my flower bed and then what happens? That stupid bird has eaten some weed or weeds, right? (laughs) We see how one is profitable, although illicit. And so he flies over, he poops in there and I go out and I'm like, I don't know what that is. I asked uh, one of our church members, I said, how can you tell a weed from a grass? And like, because I want grass, but I don't want weeds. She said, oh, honey. A weed is just grass growing where you don't want it. I said, well, that's not very encouraging. And so I go out there, and and I'm pulling all these things and pulling all these things and spraying uh, some type of weed killer and accidentally spray that on the good plants, and and they die, and that's a whole other conversation with my wife. But I go out, and two weeks later, what was once perfect and weed-free, weeds-free, right, is springing back up again. It's springing back up again. And so we find that our toil, our work without profit, goes away in the resurrection. And Paul writes there in verse 58, he said, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because we know that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. We don't toil in vain. Because the resurrection is true, we're able to have an eternal perspective. 
There's a temporal and eternal perspective. A temporal perspective says, man, I'm going to work for 40 or 50 years, and if it doesn't kill me, then I'm going to be able to do some things for me. I'm going to be able to do some things for me. And so we go, and we're, we're logging time in that clock, we're raising our kids, or whatever it is we do to pass time, and year in and year out, we live from Christmas to summer, and Christmas to summer, and Christmas to summer. And we're calling in the seasons, and in Texas, some of that could be all in one day. You could have winter, fall, spring, and summer all in one day in the state of Texas. And we find that, that it becomes this humdrum routine of life. But friends, if the resurrection is true, it changes our perspective from being based primarily temporally to giving us this eternal perspective. Because I recognize the neighborhood I live in and the way I talk to my neighbors. I recognize the job I take and the way I talk to my coworkers. I recognize that the way I spend my finances, I recognize that everything I do can have an eternal perspective. So I don't sit down with my finance guy and say, what does it look like for me to leave a large retirement to my kids so I can build my personal legacy? I go and I look at my kids and say, what does it look like for dad to have an eternal impact on them? And I show that the the gospel of Jesus Christ and his resurrection is the most important thing to me, that it shapes my life, that it changes my life, that it changes the way I make decisions, that it changes the way I spend my money, that it changes the way I spend my time. You see, the resurrection changes everything. Verse 57, we find that the resurrection gives us victory and it gives us hope. Some of us today feel burdened. Our jobs are on the line. Relationship with our spouse is awful. It was very painful to walk in holding hands and smiling this morning because we recognize when we get back to the car, that's going to be over. Some of us are sick. Some of us have lost loved ones. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us victory. And the hope we have in that isn't the hope that our life will get better, but it's the hope in this eternal perspective that our hope is unassailable. It is not able to be attacked because our hope is ultimately on the finished work of Jesus, him resurrected, him ascended, him worthy of praise and worthy of honor. We find that others in this room, there has never come a time in your life where you have submitted yourself to Jesus Christ. You tolerate him. You tolerate his goodness. You think he's okay out there, but he's not okay in here. Simple verse. Martin Luther said it was the gospel in short form. John three sixteen writes it this way. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him shouldn't perish, shouldn't die forever, but should have eternal life. And so we recognize that, that the way the Bible teaches it, humanity personally rebelled against God. And so that God then sent his son Jesus, who we say, when I say he is risen, you say he is risen indeed. So he sent his son Jesus to come and to live a perfectly sinless life. And then he died. He died at the hands of his creation. He died at the hands of the humanity that he had formed. And he was entered into the grave. And that God personally raised him three days later. And it's not just something for us to know. This is something for us to respond to. So God created all things. We rebelled against him. God took the initiative in sending Jesus. And he looks at you and he looks at me. And he calls us to response.
If you're a Christian here today, then your response looks like living a resurrected life, a life with eternal perspective, a life with unassailable hope, and a life spent, caught up in wondrous work of the kingdom. But if you're a non-Christian today, the response put before you is to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 9 and 10, it says that if we confess our sins before God, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the next moments, we're going to enter into a time of worship. We're going to have an opportunity for us just to respond, Christian and non-Christian alike. So we're going to have three songs, and we're just going to enter into a time of worship. And as we do this, this is our time to respond to God. This is our time to set our hearts with him. For some of us, man, it's just this joyous time of rejoicing. For others of you, you need to come forward and to pray with someone. You need to come forward and to confess sin. You need to come forward and pray for yourself. You need to come forward and talk to someone about what it is to be a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. So as the band's preparing to come up, let me lead us in a prayer and then we will join our hearts together in worship. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. God, I pray that you would be with those who have been living a crucified life. There's no joy. There's no happiness. There's no gladness in them. They feel the burden of goodness. God, would you remove that from them? Would you show them that all the goodness that was ever needed was placed in Jesus Christ? that he has personally atoned for their sins. And their life that they are called to live is not one of crucifixion, but one of resurrection. So Father, too, we pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to Jesus. The reasons are so many. I don't think it's intellectually tenable. They don't trust in your goodness. They don't trust in your mercy. They're too young, they're too old, they're too busy, they're too bitter. God, would you resurrect their hearts? Would you give them faith and belief? Would you show them your grace and ability to cause them to stand? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.